And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Here we are, the Halloween season, and once again, Fascinating Nouns will not disappoint. I've got a two-episode series for you this year, both on the notorious H.H. Holmes. First episode, tonight, I talked to Harold Schechter, who's a prolific author, master of the serial killer. He wrote a book called Depraved, where he outlines the notorious H.H. Holmes. And then next episode is going to be with the great-great-grandson Jeff Mudgett, who has a very interesting and compelling theory that H.H. Holmes was, in fact, Jack the Ripper. Since we're talking about monsters and it is Halloween, I want to tell you about my brand new podcast called Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, which you can find on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. This is a series where I sit down with physicist Dr. Michael Denon, rocket scientist Ben Seepser, and biologist Dr. Brittany Needham, and we break down superhero and science fiction technologies and tell you how to make that fictional technology a reality. First episode is Frankenstein's Monster Just in Time for Halloween. Please check it out. I highly encourage it. You will not regret it. And now on to Harold Schechter as we talk about notorious serial killer Herman Webster Mudgett, a.k.a. H.H. Holmes. Um, well, so let's let's get into this. So, uh, first of all, do you like Harold, Professor Harry, the Sheck? What do you like? <laughs> um, any of those except Harry? No, you can call me Harold. That's fine. <laughs> so, no, the Sheck. Um, yeah. All right. So uh, let's go, yeah. Harold. So you've kind of so you're like the serial killer guru. You're like the historian. You've done, I think it's thirty six books mm-hmm. now. What are we up to? Um. Yeah, I mean, well, actually, um, to be precise, I'm just uh, about to publish my 40th, but oh. not all of them are on serial killers. Um, <laughs> Fair you know, enough. I've, I've done, a, you know, I've done a variety of other books. You know, uh, I have a whole or have had a whole other life as an academic. So, you know, some of them are on more scholarly topics related to that aspect of my life. But, um, but yeah, but I have done, I don't know. I guess uh, at least a dozen or more on serial killers. So. Wow. Well, so what are, your, what are your other books on? Are they? Uh, wh- what's the other life? If we can talk about that for a second, I like to to know a little bit more. Since we're talking about the hidden, the secrets of, yeah. of people and serial killers, yeah. I assume your hidden life isn't a serial exactly. killer. <laughs> well, it's not that hidden. Um, <laughs> I have yeah. been um, for forty-two years. I'm actually about to retire after this semester. Uh, a professor of American literature oh. and American culture at Queens College, one of the senior colleges of the City University of New York. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, you know, so I've published um, uh, different kinds of scholarly books. I mean, my, my, my academic background 
is in what's called myth criticism. So, you know, I've published, uh, I published a book called The Bosom Serpent on folk, the relationship between folklore and popular culture. Um, you know, I've been, I'm very, very interested in and have been somewhat passionate about the whole question of violence in the media mm. and how much it does or does not affect um, the public. Uh, published a book uh, called Savage Pastimes, A Cultural History of Violent Entertainment. Um, so, yeah, and in the beginning of my career as a more commercial writer, I was, you know, basically writing books about whatever interested me at the moment. I mean, I've written a couple of books on the movies and so on, but at some point, um, well, I guess, I guess around 1989 or so, um, you know, I became very fascinated. I'd actually been working on a book about the movies. Uh, and when I was researching the horror chapter, uh, you know, I came across the, the Ed Gein case mm -hmm. as the inspiration for Psycho and Texas Chainsaw Massacre at that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, that led me to um, research that story. And, and that became the beginning of my career as a writer on um, serial murder. So, so Gein was your gateway murderer? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I wrote a book uh, called Deviant. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that book did well. And, you know, I had an editor uh, who offered me very useful advice at that time, which was um, that if I, you know, wanted to have a, you know, a, a, an ongoing career as a writer, I should kind of pigeonhole myself. You know, again, at that time, I was writing books on all kinds of subjects. Let's say specialized. So, um, specialized. Yeah. Pigeonhole has a bad connotation. Yes. Let's say specialized. Yes, specialized, yeah. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah. So, so, you know, writing for better or for worse, you know, writing about, uh, writing about psychopathic sex killers seemed to be congenial to my temperament um, <laughs> and interest. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Anyway, so that's how I got into it. That's pretty incredible because I mean you you were so you were a fan of horror movies I assume. Yes, you know I'm a you know a baby boomer. Um, you know I'm just actually reading or actually listening on Audible to Stephen King's It, which I never never read. Um, I'm a fan of his. Yeah. But you know it's set in 1958, the the original book, and um, you know I'm just always struck. I mean you know King, who I guess is my exact age, you know was exposed to all the same things I was growing up, you know, all the mm. horror movies and horror comics and, you know, uh, creature feature shows on TV. So, yeah, I mean, all that horror stuff uh, definitely uh, shaped or warped, you know, my imagination, you know, growing <laughs> up, and, you know, and, 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 you know, that's very much related to how I got into the whole uh, true crime writing because, um, you know, just, I've always been very interested in monsters and uh, why we need stories about monsters. You know, what sort of imaginative and psychological function that serves. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, when I first started writing, I, I thought immodestly that I was creating a new genre because I thought of it not so much as true crime as true horror. Uh -huh. You know, that I was writing about. Again, people like Gein, people like Albert Fish, mm -hmm. you know, people like Holmes who assume this kind of mythic dimension in the culture, um, you know, became these real life boogeymen. Um, so, so yeah. So, but to go back to your question, yes, I've always been, you know, very, 
contemporary and to horror stories. And, you know, the material that I, I mostly have taught as an academic is 19th century American literature, which of course is full of, you know, Gothic stuff, Definitely, you know, yeah. Poe and Hawthorne and so and so. Sure. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I read it as a kid. I was probably, I was probably way too young to read it as maybe like 12 yeah. or 13, but I read the whole book. It's like 3000 pages or something. Yeah. Maybe not that big, but um, I remember it yeah. profoundly affecting me. Like I love Stephen King, but he's, uh, you know, when when you're young, your mind can get kind of molded by all this stuff, and you have like a fascination. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you and I have healthy outlets for it, but other people don't have yeah. outlets for it, which is interesting <laughs> yeah. because this is a, it's an interesting segue into H. H. Holmes because he kind of comes like before all of this stuff, before it was ever in the media. And I was watching a mm-hmm. lecture that you did, and we were you were talking about depraved, uh, and I just want to say that depraved. You can tell you were you were are a fiction writer because it mm-hmm. is so well written, and Thank it you. is just easy to digest, and it's very riveting, which can kind of be tricky yeah. with with yeah. things like this. It's so yeah. well researched, um, right. and and I think you just did a great job with this. A story that that could possibly be boring with all those twists and turns. You kind of turn them and make them very exciting uh, instead of very boring. So. Uh, just excellent job with that. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know, I mean, um, you know, that's, that's the challenge, uh, that I face and deal with as a writer. And, you know, it's also what makes the writing, um, pleasurable for me is, is taken, you know, this mass of, uh, sort of dry documents and turning it into, um, a readable, you know, a readable right. narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I avoid, um, well, now I'm way more scrupulous even than I used to be about not including anything that, you know, I couldn't document, you know, with the earlier books like Holmes and, and the fish book and the game book, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't novelize it, but, but I would allow myself like little tiny embellishments, for example, mm-hmm. I think in depraved, you know, I describe the you know the contents of the window of Mrs. Holton's drugstore, mm-hmm, which right. I didn't actually know, but I did do a lot of research uh-huh. into the kinds of you know items that uh, you know that that a, a, an eighteen nineties Chicago drugstore might have in its window. Yeah. But but otherwise, you know, you know, I, I as I said, I, I I really I don't like you know the kind of novelization i mean i love for example in cold blood but but the fact that capote you know uh fabricated some significant stuff you know is problematic um and i myself have trouble reading any kind of nonfiction, you know where i feel the writer is engaging in kind of undue speculation so you know i try to be very very careful about that so you didn't so there wasn't a lot of creative license with the major facts in your uh, no. depraved. Okay, yep. that's important yep. because as people read it, um, you know, you want yep. to to believe that you're reading what is essentially right. an exciting version of history. You know, um, well, you know, I did a lot, a lot of research for that book. Um, uh, you know, I've start over the last, I would say, ten years or so. You know, I've started to um, I've started to footnote my books. Uh, I didn't, you know, in the beginning, partly because, you know, when I start, you know, true crime has now become such a huge thing. Um, you know, when I started writing true crime, it was still, you know, basically, 
regarded as a little bit of a subliterary genre. Um, you know, I couldn't, you know, I really wanted, for example, to have the Ed Gein book published in hardcover. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my publisher back then, it was like, you know, basically people who read true crime just buy paperbacks. You know, the situation is very, very different now. So, right. But, but you know, but the point is, I mean, if you look, for example, at the back of the Holmes book, um, you know, there's a fairly, there's a very detailed, um, a little, you know, mini essay on, on all the sources I used. So. Oh, that's, and that's, that's important as people read it because you want to take it as, I mean, it's not a reference book, but it, it should be yeah. something that obviously has facts in it. Yeah. But, you know, so we were talking about how, you know, modern popular culture, especially like all this stuff mm-hmm. you know, that molded our brains as kids, and it didn't really exist. Yeah. But what's kind of fun is that H.H. H. Holmes has kind of entered mm-hmm. into the popular culture here even mm-hmm. recently i mean he was the inspiration for mr march in a recent season of american horror story uh and, and mm-hmm. so actually it was that it was that season that kind of got me interested in this character because i knew mo- all their stuff's kind of based on real life it's all inspired mm-hmm. by real life and so as i started researching hh mm-hmm. H. holmes i grew up in chicago and i never grew mm-hmm. up like learning about him so to, to as i started mm-hmm. falling down this rabbit hole it was kind of like crazy to think like this happened you know couple miles from where i grew up like that's insane you know right yeah well i mean you know eric larson's book uh devil in the white city you know introduced um a lot of people tomes who you know who don't normally read don't normally read true crime um you know larson you know my book was a you know a major source for larson um you know he you know i you know i like to i mean he's a good writer but you know i like to think that he uh sort of made true crime safe for mm. sort of suburban book clubs, right. you know, yeah. by, um, you know, by, by linking it to the whole story of the creation of the world's fair and so on. Um, so yeah, no, you know, when I, when I, when I started researching the Holmes book, you know, Holmes was incredibly obscure. Um, I mean, there'd been a couple of books about him, Robert Block, actually, the guy who wrote psycho, uh, wrote a novel, you know, based on Holmes. Um, there was another book called The Torture Doctor by a guy named David Frank, which was, you know, basically kind of a cut and paste book. I mean, you know, just took uh, a bunch of newspaper articles from Chicago papers and, and you know, kind of reprinted them. Um, but otherwise, you know, but Holmes was very, very obscure then. You know, now, yeah, he's really, you know, he's really become much more prominent. Um, but yeah, he disappeared. It's interesting. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I've been researching. I have a book coming out in April um, called Hell's Princess uh, about um, Belle Gunness, who was the Lady Bluebeard of Laporte, Indiana. This woman who lured a bunch of lonely Norwegian bachelors to her Indiana farm and killed them. Wow. Um, that was like a 1908. And, you know, in researching that, there are all these, you know, comparisons between her and H.H. H. Holmes. And, uh, you know, there's another case I'm interested in, um, about, a, a bluebeard named Johan Hawk. And, you know, when you look at the papers from 1905, you know, they, they compare him to H.H. H. Holmes. So there was a, you know, time right after, you know, the Holmes case broke, you know, that he was a very, very, you know, infamous character, but for whatever reason, he really faded from public memory. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's kind of because like, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story before we begin, but it is interesting that you know he ends up going being on trial for one murder mm-hmm. and kind of mm-hmm. three really, but you know it mm-hmm. isn't until like he's in custody that they enter into the murder castle and then kind of put together all the pieces. Like if that were to happen today, obviously all these murders would be tied to him and he'd be going to trial for everything. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. it's, it maybe that's why maybe people didn't understand. I don't know. It, but that's a really good, it's an interesting like cultural question as to why he faded from memory because, yeah. you know, I think yeah. in the book you point out, he's the U S's first serial killer. And then I was re- watching a lecture and you kind of went back on that. Cause you said something very interesting, yeah. which is, that you know, this stuff's been going on since there's been humanity, yeah. but he was kind of the first yeah. real caught notorious serial killer. Right. Yeah. Now that um, you know, I've, you know, I've learned quite a bit more about uh, the whole phenomenon since I wrote the book. And uh, yeah, I mean, there have been serial killers in the United States going back at least to the 1700s. So um, you know, that was certainly a misnomer. Um, but uh, you know, but but. But the Holmes case, you know, was probably the first national, you know, that became this really nationwide um, newspaper phenomenon um, at the time. So, you know, in that sense, you know, one could say he was the country's first modern serial killer, you know, in the way Jack the Ripper was you know, England's first modern serial killer, even right. though there have been serial killers. And know, those were concurrent, back. essentially. They were operating at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, there was this recent uh, TV series um, called American Ripper um, that was inspired by Holmes's great-grandson, Jeff Mudgett, mm-hmm. you know, that tried to make the case that Holmes actually was Jack the Ripper, um, which is not really a theory that I subscribe to. But um, well, I'll let you but, be careful because yeah, part okay. two of my H.H. Holmes thing, I'm interviewing Jeff Mudgett. So we're going yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. to get into that because it's a very interesting theory. Whether you subscribe to it or not, I think that there's strong yeah. arguments that make it at least like kind of something that you can, you know, plausible. Yeah. That's interesting to think about. Right. So, so let's. I think the thing that made Holmes unique, you know, and obviously you're the expert, but really what made him unique was the murder castle, which is essentially like, um, and actually in that Holmes series, one of the investigators calls it the industrialization of murder, like the Hydrant T. Ford factory murder, you know, uh, murder factory. Uh, it's it's yeah. really, into, I mean, to me, that's what kind of makes him unique. But before we get into that, so that's the teaser. Let's talk about Holmes's early life, because I think with a lot of, you know, people who end up being infamous and even famous for good reasons, but definitely for the bad. We take a look at their childhood. And as we discussed earlier, you know, it's the things that happen as a kid that kind of mold us into the people that we become and become obsessed with later in life. So what was Holmes's mm-hmm. early life like? Well, you know, one of the problems in um, writing about serial murders, particularly from the 19th century and earlier, is that you know, there's really not a lot of reliable information about their background, you know, partly because, you know, it's not until they become infamous as adults that people care about them. Right. And right. so, you know, their early life, well, even even somebody like Ed Gein in the 1950s, you know, there isn't like a, a lot of documentation about his early life. So, you know, we have to rely on Holmes's own memoirs and things like that. So, there is some evidence, but I mean, one common denominator among many serial murderers is um, that they are subjected 
uh, to extreme forms of abuse and humiliation uh, in their childhood. I mean, there is some evidence, you know, that Holmes, Holmes, uh, you know, Holmes's father, you know, was somewhat physically abusive. Although again, it's it's hard to know. I mean, back then, spare the rod mm-hmm. and spoil the child, you know, was a you know pretty widespread credo. Um, so again, you know, everything is, is very speculative. You know, he himself wrote about a very early, you know, very early experience when a bunch of neighborhood bullies, you know, forced him into the local doctor's office and shoved him into a little cabinet with a skeleton, uh, and how traumatic that was, you know, there's also some suggestion that he was responsible for the supposedly accidental death of a playmate. Um, but again, you know, this is all highly speculative. Um, yeah. So really that's, that's about, you know, the thing is that, you know, with Holmes, like all these, again, mythic serial killers in our past, in our past, you know, there's just a lot of folklore that grows up around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it becomes very hard to separate the truth from, you know, from the legend. Um, and yeah, so my, you know, my, I have to say that my, my perception and thoughts about Holmes have changed somewhat since the time that I wrote the book. Um, but I will hold off on sharing that with you until we get to some of that stuff. Okay. No, that's fair. I mean, one of the interesting things about Holmes in not to sensationalize it, but I think there's two quick points I want to make before we continue is that he was in the Guinness book of world records as the most, Uh like basically the most serial kills, right? At one point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's, that's crazy. I can't, first of all, I can't believe that. Well, I don't know how they confirmed it, because I think that even the number is still unconfirmed, but also that that would be an entry into their Guinness book as it's as as you know, because I usually think of that book as things that human, you know, supernatural, super uh, supernatural, but like beyond the nature of normal human capacity that you strive to to beat, you know, fastest running, you know, whatever. But it seems like that's a weird one to put in there. Oh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah. I mean, that is a category and uh, it is changed. Um, not sure who holds the record now, even if the cut, um, Guinness book of records features that, but yeah, but for a while, I mean, there was another, um, person that I wrote a book about a, a female serial killer named Jane Toppin. She was a, a nurse who poisoned, mm. um, uh, 30, you know, confirmed 31 people. And she was in the Guinness book of records for a while. And then she was superseded by John Wayne Gacy with 37, um, you know, again, I don't know if, if the Guinness Book of Records still, you know, still has that category, but they certainly used to. I mean, I guess but the thing with records. Holmes, again, is, yeah, yeah, records are records. And, but the thing is that, um, and, you know, the fact of the matter is, as our present conversation illustrates, you know, people are, people are fascinated by this stuff. I mean, there's yeah. no, there's no point in denying it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, but, but again, the thing with Holmes that's problematic is, you know, a lot of, you know, the, what what has come down to us about his crimes, you know, is based on the, you know, the autobiography, the confession that he ultimately wrote. Um, and you know, there are, there are issues with that confession. 
Yeah, he wasn't very so, reliable. I mean, he definitely was a pathological liar. Well, he makes true. He was very, uh, you know, m- murky water kind of mixing truth with with. Uh, yeah. Fiction. Well, it wasn't just that he was unreliable. It was that, you know, the the journalistic culture of the time yeah, was extremely so. unreliable. Yeah. You know uh, what they called back then the yellow papers, you know, uh, the Hearst papers and the Pulitzer papers. You know, their basic, you know, motto was never let the facts get in the way of a good story. Uh, You know, and, you know, these were were reporters who would, you know, routinely make stuff up or, you know, print wild speculations as, you know, verifiable fact. And uh, so, you know, it becomes becomes very difficult really to, you know, separate the truth um, from, again, the myths that grow up around it, just to... You know, I, I mean, I myself have very grave doubts, you know, about the castle being quite, you know, the slaughterhouse that it has often been portrayed as. Uh, well, that's in- I mean, that's interesting. Let, let's get that. I want to get to the murder house. Uh, I want to spend some yeah. time on that because I find it interesting. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that originally yeah. our interview was scheduled for yesterday, which would have been the, the 28th mm-hmm. of October. And while that's important, um, as I was hoping to be doing this on the t- 122nd anniversary of the beginning of Holmes's trial, um, which yeah. is insignificant, but it's kind of fun to mention. So we're actually on day two, mm-hmm. 122nd okay. anniversary of day one, uh, day two of the trial. So that's that's something. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So, so yeah. now you Take mentioned that. so Holmes starts out it, so he gets bullied, but like the skeleton story, um, you know that's that's widely documented. But he also mm-hmm. assisted a local doctor in dissections, right? Like, did, wasn't he kind of getting his medical um, fascination yeah. early on? Um, yeah, and uh, yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, he did go to medical school. Um, so, but again, you know it doesn't really account for, you know, the psychopathology of Holmes. Um, But what he did to his victims is interesting because it, it, you know, he had like this very early kind of fascination with dissection, which is kind of what Mm -hmm. rears its head in the murder house later on, Mm -hmm. is that there was this kind of like weird fascination with seeing the insides of people, Um, you know, and, and well, yeah, well, I mean, Holmes, Again, the thing about Holmes is, um, and and again, it might partly account for why, you know, he didn't quite achieve, for example, the notoriety of Jack the Ripper. Mm-hmm. You know, Jack the Ripper, you know, there's something about the, the nature of, you know, the extreme, you know, sexual mutilations and you know, bodily mutilation, bodily mutilations, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, that, that rings a very powerful, you know, cord of, you know, titillation and, and so on and so forth in people. Um, you know, you see, for example, the photographs of, you know, of, of the prostitutes he killed, you know, you, you have that, you know, extreme sex and violence stuff going on, right. you know, that, again, exerts a very dark fascination, you know, in cases like Jeffrey Dahmer. And so the thing about Holmes is, you know, a lot of his crimes seem to be basically, you know, committed out of mercenary motives. Um, so in terms of the dissection of the corpses, 
you know, partly is like, um, you know, he was just, you know, preparing the skeletons to sell them to medical schools. In other words, I, I, I always felt that with Holmes, there was a, there was an, an aspect of, of sexual sadism um, that was missing from, from the crimes that made them ultimately, again, less, you know, less fascinating, you know, to, to people. Because, you know, my feeling is, you know, that all of us nice, normal, quote-unquote, moral, law-abiding people, you know, possess, again, you know, what the psychiatrist call a shadow side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and we turn to these stories as much as anything else, you know, to get some kind of vicarious, well, to ventilate our own darkest sadistic impulses mm-hmm. in some safe, socially approved way. Uh, and I always felt with Holmes, there's a little, you know, often, you know, a little bit of that missing in a lot of the crimes. So, well, I mean, you know, you know, we, was, yeah. we keep jumping to the, the murder castle. I'm trying to build a foundation first, but but I have to answer this because yeah. I think. You know, again, you're the expert here, but but from what I understand, what again, what, what I said earlier was that the murder castle, this this factory to death that he makes, is is that's the key part that makes him special, because we don't know. I mean, he could have easily been doing all of this stuff. I mean, there's there's lots of accounts of him having medical, you know, conducting medical experiments in the basement. But in the basement yeah, no, but, of this yeah. murder castle, I mean, it was designed yeah. to dispose of bodies. You know, he had he had a kiln that was you know basically a crematorium. He used quicklime to remove flesh. He had acid vats. I mean, he had ways to dispose of bodies that yeah. you know we don't know. He could have been doing all the all this stuff was in private. That was the brilliance of what he did. I mean, obviously, it's going to lend itself to speculation. Like people like me were like, oh, he could have been doing anything down there. And then there's people like you were saying like, oh, I don't know that he did that much. It's such a wide spectrum because you don't know. It's yeah. all it's all a dark cover over that. I just believe if you put that much effort into building. A building that was, I mean, there's no other purpose other than to be killing people at a mass scale. Um, you know, uh, you yeah. have well, to the be problem, doing yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, part of the problem is, you know, for example, and again, you know, I I, I know I'm coming off <laughs> as a contrarian, um, but again, this, your you know, words, not mine. <laughs> yeah, but my thinking has really undergone a little bit of a shift, as I said. You know, one, you know, you know, this notion, you know, that that home, you know, that he created this, you know, murder factory at the time of the World's Fair, you know, is killing all these, you know, there really isn't any evidence that a significant number of people or in fact, any people, you know, reported relatives who had gone to the Chicago World's Fair and disappeared. You know, you'd think that if, you know, Holmes, let's say, had killed, well, a dozen or 20 or 100, you know, fairgoers, you know, who had been lodged at his hotel, there would be some reports, you know, somewhere of relatives reporting that, you know, their relatives or friends or whatever had gone to the Chicago World's Fair and never returned. And and there really isn't any of that. Um, you know, you also have to, again, if you read the newspapers um, at the time, you know, it, it might report, you know, some investigators went into the basement of the castle and found these human bones. And then, you know, two days later, you know, on page 23, 
you know, there might be like a little tiny thing saying, oh, by the way, it turned out those were chicken bones. Um, and, and again, you have to put it into the context of, of what was going on in those papers at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, 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 there's no doubt that Holmes killed people in the castle. Um, and, you know, and, and, you know, and, and use his basement, you know, as, as a place for disposing of the remains, you know, but the notion of it's being, again, this murder factory, um, you know, I, I really think to a large extent that was a, you know, that was a creation of the, you know, of the, of the yellow press at the time. Um, you know, you'll, you'll read, oh, they went in and they found, you know, a noose that, uh, you know, was hanging from a stairwell and he, you know, and then they would speculate that he probably, you know, hung his victims and watched them die slowly or whatever, you know, and again, you know, then you might read a few days later, another account, and it was just like some straight rope hanging there. So, so what I'm saying is, I think we have to be very, very, very careful. You know, Holmes was a fascinating enough character, uh, and, and obviously a, a, a psychopathic enough character, you know, to be, you know, very, very famous and, and, uh, you know, an evil celebrity in, in our criminal history, you know, without, you know, without exaggerating, you know, the monstrosity of what he did. Um, again, my own, you know, my own feeling is, you know, the castle was just some, you know, sort of ineptly designed office building, you know, in which he certainly killed and disposed of some people, you know, but was not this, you know, they immediately spoke of it as this Bluebeard's castle um, that again had been created specifically. And, you know, I myself in writing the book am somewhat responsible, I think, for you know, perpetuating that myth. Um, well, hold on. Let me ask you a couple uh, but, of questions here. I mean, because so I, so I see where you stand, but let, let me challenge you a little bit on here because I think, you know, the Winchester Mystery House, also an episode that I did, um, seems to be mm-hmm. completely, you know, you could say ineptly designed, as you said, or, you know, because there's stairways yep. that go to nowhere, doors that open up into nothing. And as the episode that I did, um, you know, there was a guy who really truly believes there's a lot of Masonic symbolism and that Sarah Winchester had nothing mm-hmm. to do with the story that they're putting forth and that she had a very specific design model. Um, interesting theory as well. Now, with, with, with the Holmes case, i got to challenge you a little bit because I would – he was so smart in every other aspect. I mean, undoubtedly, everyone says how brilliant this man was, especially with the amount of schemes that he pulled off and, like, everything he could do. He designed the castle – he was the architect. He built the, the floor designs. I'm going to post up pictures of the actual designs. There, there are very few people who would say that that wasn't designed specifically for, at, at you know, at, at a grand scale, uh, murdering people and disposing of their bodies. It, it just doesn't make any sense. There's... Now, if you see pictures of the castle, quote unquote, first of all, e- e- even the mere fact that it was called the castle um, is, you know, sort of indicative of what I'm saying about, I mean, you know, if you look at it, it just looks like a very, very, very mundane, ordinary building. Sure. Sure. Um, Castles are great. You know, with all these active, you know, with all these active businesses, you know, on the first floor of it, um, you know, to go back, you know, one of the things that, um, you know, one of the reasons, one of my, the reasons I became interested in this whole field 
as I said earlier, was, you know, my, my fascination with the question of why, you know, we need stories about monsters, you know, which we do from the time we're children. And, you know, my feeling about serial killers and stories about serial killers is that there's a way in which when we read about them, they kind of turn us into like little children again. You know, it's like, again, like what, when you were reading it, um, you know, these, and, 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 you know, and again, it activates these very, very primal primitive fantasies, you know, and we tend to transform these criminal into these, again, larger than life from supernatural monsters. You know, it happened with Ed Gein, for example. I mean, Gein was, you know, an extraordinarily sick, you know, person. But immediately all these myths grew up about him, that he was a cannibal. And, you know, in other words, the popular imagination immediately turned him into, you know, like an ogre out of a fairy tale. Um, and, you know, something similar has happened to Holmes. And it happened immediately. I mean, he became, you know, this bluebeard living in this murder castle. In other words, you know, uh, the, the, you know, the his crimes immediately like activated in the imagination, all these infantile fantasies, you know, that we, all of us possess. I mean, and, uh, you know, so, so then, you know, it became very, very easy you know, to start to not only for the newspapers to play on that stuff, you know, that in the middle of Chicago, you know, in the, mo- you know, the modern day Chicago, you know, here was this monster out of a Grimm's fairy tale, um, you know, running this, you know, murder factory. And again, I could be totally wrong, by the way. Well, no, that's, <laughs> I mean, you know, well, I do want to finish yeah, what I was I could saying be totally because, wrong. Uh, because, yeah. because, you know, you've, you've made your point. I, I get sensationalism. You know, I understand that. And I'm not trying to make yeah. a bigger deal of it than it is. But I, let me just bring up a few points here, because I think the things he had in his castle were not just inept designs. Right. So he had asbestos lined rooms specifically designed to keep noise out so that people in the in the hotel couldn't hear what's going on in that room. He had gas lines that he could control from a main room that went out to each individual hotel rooms that he could, you know, decide whether he wanted to put poisonous gas or any kind of gas in there to kill, asphyxiate people in his sleep, which was a hallmark of what he did. He had a chute that you could dump people in that went directly to the basement. Now, okay, I'm adding dump human bodies in there, but why else do you have a chute that goes three floors? He had a hidden a hidden stairway that went through the floors that you couldn't get to anywhere else that was behind hidden doorways that went to the basement. He had quickline mm-hmm. pits in the basement. He had a man-sized crematorium. Um, he had, uh, he had all these things are really, you know, now, now granted, let's say he, he has, he, these are for a specific purpose. So whether the factory, you know, your argument is he, maybe he didn't kill as many people. Okay. I can get behind that. But 100%, well, that was a deviously designed yeah. building um, for the purpose of murdering, and he did murder people. He had a human-sized vault that he, that even in your book you say he's, he's asphyxiated at least three people in. So he is he's it's definitely operational. I think that the fact that the Chicago Fair happens at that time makes it a smorgasbord. Maybe that didn't happen. That I can agree with. Well, you know, it's just that it's possible. Again, and you know, I am as guilty of this as anybody else. But it's possible that like all those things you mentioned didn't actually exist. Um, in other words, what I'm saying is, you know, it's possible that, um, Oh, you're saying the you floor know, the plans shoot, were falsified maybe. 
or, or well, I don't think upon. the floor plans. I don't think the floor plans, you know, indicate that he had a shoot and gas lines and so on and so forth. I mean, the floor plans, as I remember, the only floor plan I saw, you know, showed the layout of the rooms and so on. You know, but, but what I'm saying is that, you know, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility, you know, that a reporter at that time, you know, for, you know, one of the Hearst papers, you know, went into the castle and, you know, saw, you know, there was like a, you know, a gas pipe um, running between one room and another. When, of course, it would have been gas pipes because the rooms would have been lit by gas, you know, and then, you know, created this whole thing, you know, that homes could control the gas and so on and so forth. You know, it's possible that there was a dumb waiter somewhere, you know, that one of her reporters, you know, then reported as being a shoe to dispose of human bodies. You know, it's possible, you know, that there was something in the basement, you know, that then, you know, got turned into an acid vat. To disp- oh, I'm just saying, to me, from what I have learned about, you know, the, the kind of reporting that especially the Chicago newspapers, you know, were engaging in back then, um, you know, and, you know, combined with, you know, our you know, very, very human need, you know, to, you know, to, to hear stories about monsters, you know, to be turned into wonderstruck children again, um, you know, that, that it's possible. I'm just saying, you know, that all of those features you mentioned were not actually as sinister as, you know, now has come down to us. So, no, uh, so I agree with that. I do find I do think our role reversal is very strange. That I'm trying to convince you that he was a serial killer, and you're trying to convince me <laughs> yeah, he wasn't. Yeah. That's very interesting no, no, to me. No, I I think he is. No, there's no question he was a serial killer. Well, knowing uh, that I, all you've read about but, serial killers, you know that they don't stop. It's not like someone kills somebody. I mean, very maybe crimes of passion. You kill someone and don't have like a lust for it. But you know, he was a you right. know he had three wives. He was a, a serial philanderer. Yeah, totally. He would get women pregnant and have a botched abortion and kill them on purpose and dispose of their bodies. And no, no question. I'm not. I'm not trying to minimize his evil. I mean, the guy, you know, horror, you know, cold-bloodedly murdered three children. You know, you know, his closest associate. Um, no, I think he. I think there's. You know, uh, as I remember, I, I think he certainly murdered. You know, at least nine people. Let's say. Um, uh, so I, I'm not saying he wasn't a serial killer. I mean, he was definitely a serial killer, right. and he was definitely a psychopath. Um, and he was definitely, you know, a frighteningly evil person. Uh, I'm just questioning, you know, some of the very extravagant stories, you know, that have grown up around him. And then again, you know, I myself in my book, and when I was writing my book, you know, was totally persuaded by, um, but, but, you know, sort of by the time I got to the end of my book, I was a little bit troubled by some of the, some of the stuff. And and in the years since, you know, particularly, um, you know, in researching other kind of contemporary cases, uh, you know, and seeing the way, um, you know, seeing the way the, 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 the yellow press back then, particularly around Chicago, mm-hmm. um, you know, would often, uh, you know, embellish, you know, these stories. Um, and, and again, also coming to understand a little more, 
you know, why we crave to hear stories about serial killers like Holmes. In other words, you know, all of us are too old to believe Hansel and Gretel, you know, but, you know, if you hear about like some guy, you know, some, you know, who was somebody like Gein or something, you know, who did have this little farmhouse, you know, with disembodied corpses and so on, you know, it's like this mythic monster come to life and, and then it becomes very, very easy. You know, with Ed Gein, for example, you know, there are all these immediate stories that he was a cannibal. And, and there's like no evidence that Gein was a cannibal, you know, but you almost, you know, you're, again, your you're sort of childlike imagination needs him to be a cannibal, you know, so he more fits in with that folk story. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. No, so, I, I do. I do understand that. Yeah. I, I just think that there's, so, I think there's more substance to Holmes than you're giving him credit for. Like, I do understand that the ease, you know, and what you're saying about the press, I totally understand. It was a different time. I mean, look, there's a lot of stuff going on in the press today. That That's always a problem, mm -hmm. but I think it's been a problem throughout history. I think you're right. People do exaggerate. Yeah. People do love to have, you know, um, yeah. their monsters. I just think that given, and even if the layout's incorrect, we know he murdered several people. He had a very, I mean, even with women that he was supposedly yeah, in love totally. with, they would get pregnant yeah. and it was a problem and he disposed of them. Yeah. And people like that absolutely. don't just stop doing it. Yeah. And and the castle's not, yeah, in place absolutely. to do it, with, it yeah. you know, without being detected. Yes, I totally agree with that. Yeah, the only thing, again, that I'm somewhat taking issue with is, again, this notion that has grown up, you know, that, um, you know, that, that he was, Again, you know, this whole murder factory, you know, this whole murder factory um, thing, like during the World's Fair and so on. Yeah. Um, so, so, but yeah, but you're completely right. I mean, there's, you know, he murdered Julia Connor, um, you know, he murdered Minnie Williams and her sister. I mean, that's absolutely established. And then, you know, most heinously, you know, was his incredibly cold-blooded murder, you know, of the Peisel children. Right. So, you know, so... Seemingly without thought, yeah, like, I, without thought against it, like, without remorse. Like, those are the worst. Don't do that. Yeah. Now, now, it's interesting well, in the book, the this is an interesting segue, because you talk about, like, that was the one part of the book that um, I was kind of surprised that the bulk of the book is actually about, and, and this is interesting, don't get me wrong, I just was surprised that a book about Holmes kind of glosses over yep. the castle, now I understand why you did it, and <laughs> glosses over yep. the World's Fair, now I understand why you did it. But, like, the, you know, yep. you spend about 150 pages, maybe, talking about, um, they have this big, they cook, I'll, I'll just set it up really quickly, um, Holmes and his, and his right-hand man, Pietzel, kind of cook up this this mm -hmm. insurance scheme, which which um, Holmes had been doing, you know, since high school, um, and mm -hmm. and so they were, or not, I'm sorry, since college, and so they were gonna, you know, basically find it a body for Pietzel and then um, cash in on the insurance money, and then Holmes actually mm -hmm. ends up murdering Pietzel, uh, and then mm -hmm. trying to tell his wife and five kids, you know, they all mm -hmm. they're all in the impression that it's all still a work, uh, a scam, mm -hmm. and so then. Holmes like kind of carts everybody around the the United States. Mm -hmm. The whole story mm -hmm. you tell is is really interesting about how he's trying to confuse. You know, he's got right. his, his third wife at the time is traveling. 
you know the uh, um, the the wife I uh, forget Mrs. Pietzel and and her oldest and youngest kid are are in are in one a second caravan and then three of the other kids are in a third caravan they're all in the same city mm-hmm. a couple blocks from each other right. he does this in like five yeah. U.S. cities one Canadian city it's really interesting that you talk about that but I was wondering why why did you focus on that so much I mean it is what ultimately brings him down and then the trial also mm-hmm. is extremely interesting but but how come that was so interesting to you that part. Well, um, a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I mean, to me, you know, that illustrates, you know, the diabolical nature of Holmes, perhaps better than anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that he cooked up and carried out, you know, this incredibly elaborate um, scheme, uh, where, as you said, you know, he persuaded this close associate of his. Um, you know, to take out this life insurance policy and then supposedly, uh, and, you know, Peitzel or Pietzel, however the name is pronounced, I've never been sure. Um, uh, you know, Holmes would acquire, you know, a corpse and they would substitute for Peitzel and collect the money and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and then, uh, you know, the way he manipulated um, Peitzel's wife, Carrie, and the three kids. I mean, you know, that, that to me illustrated, you know, Holmes' fiendish nature um, in a way more clearly than anything else. The other thing is that, uh, you know, one of the, uh, the very famous books about Holmes was written by the detective Frank Geyer, uh, who finally managed, you know, to locate the bodies of the children, you know, which Holmes again, you know, had gone to great, great lengths to conceal in various places. Um, and, you know, the Holmes, uh, Geyer's book on the Holmes Peitzel case, um, you know, really focuses on that. But, you know, the, 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 the pursuit of Holmes uh, and the capture of Holmes and the revelation of Holmes uh, as a result of that, you know, that insurance thing, you know, to me, that was, you know, a very, very fascinating part of the story. I mean, really kind of a gripping sensation, uh, suspenseful part of the story. Um, and, and, you know, again, it was also term, kind of a, um, you know, police procedural in a way, uh, you know, yeah. exactly how Peitzel back then, um, you know, was able to, you know, was able to discover this stuff that Holmes had so ingeniously concealed. You know, but but as I said, I mean, you know, the fact that, you know, Holmes really was an extraordinary character. There's no question about it. You know, as I say in my book, if he hadn't been a psychopath, you know, right. um, you know, he could have been, you know, he could have been, you know, a great man, you know, and he, and he really was a, a, a product of his time. I mean, you know, one of the things that interests me is the way in which every era seems to produce some criminal who who represents like the darkest, darkest mm-hmm. impulses of that time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like Charles Manson, you know, as the yeah. shadow, yep. you know, of, of the, of the counterculture, you know, or, or Leopold and Loeb mm-hmm. back in the 1920s, yep. you know, were like, you know, the darkest, you know, the darkest incarnations of the, you know, what they used to call the flaming youth of the 1920s, mm-hmm. you know, and Holmes was like, you know, the dark shadow of all these gilded age industrialists and entrepreneurs and so on and so forth. Sure. You know, he was at, you know, he was at, a, you know, that gilded age 
that Gilded Age drive to become rich, you know, at any cost, you know, in its most, again, devilish form. So, you know, so as I said, that part of the story, to me, it, you know, in a way, which is completely documented. Right. Um, and, you say, know, that there, must be your favorite no part, is that you don't have to make it, yeah. you know, it's all there. Well, you know, there's, you know, there's no speculation about it. Exactly. And, um, and uh, you know, and again, you know, it, it, it demonstrates, you know, the extreme, you know, Holmes's extreme depravity, you know, that, that he was, you know, really torturing this mother and, and, and torturing these children. And, uh, and then, and these were kids he had known since they were born, right. you know, and he, he had no, you know, no compunction, uh, you know, about, about manipulating them and ultimately murdering them, um, just to cover his own tracks. So, you know, there's no further, you know, to me, that's like more horrific in a certain kind of way, mm-hmm. you know, than, you know, than bumping off some fair goer for, you know, whatever money he's carrying. So. Sure. Well, I mean, the fair is kind of like, it represents the compulsion to kill. Like if you have to do it, there's no, I mean, there mm-hmm. were, you know, millions of people that were there. It was the most widely attended world event, I think in human history, or at least at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so making people disappear, if you have that kind of urge is like, you know, mm-hmm. It's uh, that's that's interesting to me. But this very mm-hmm. intricate chess game that he played with everyone during the tra- during mm-hmm. the, the Pietzel, you know, insurance scam. Yeah, I, I, you did a really great job documenting it. I mean, it, I was able to keep track of of where everyone was, but it's really mm-hmm. easy to get lost. Obviously, you know, that's what Holmes yeah. was doing on purpose. And I also think it's super Absolutely. interesting that an insurance company brought him down and that the Pinkerton, mm-hmm. no one could find this guy. And then the Pinkertons come mm-hmm. in. Uh, and they're an mm-hmm. incredible, uh, f- you know, phenomenon in and of itself. Uh, hopefully, a future mm-hmm. show. But they come in and they kind mm-hmm. of like find out where he is and, you know, right. set this whole thing in motion. It's really interesting yeah. stuff. Well, the other thing about the other thing about that, um, you know, the other thing about the, you know, that whole episode um, with the Pitzel kids that illustrate, you know, it's very very typical of serial killers. You know, is Holmes is you know, the sense of omnipotence Holmes had, mm. you know, the pleasure he took in manipulating people. Right. Um, you know, often it's, again, I think in many cases, you know, a, a, a consequence of having been, you know, so humiliated as, as children, you know, that these people grow up feeling, to- you know, they're feeling totally powerless and worthless. You know, they're nothing. And, you know, they, they grow up with this compensatory need, you know, to show how powerful they are and that mm-hmm. they can control everybody. Right. Um, you know, and, and there was definitely, you know, definitely a lot of that in homes. And, and again, you see that very, very clearly, you know, when he was traveling around with those children. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Uh, I mean, that is a really interesting part. And that's ultimately what brings him down. Um, so mm-hmm. let's quickly talk about, there's two things I want to get to before we finish here. Um, you know, even really quickly. So that, so he, he's ends up being, he get, ends up, um, I forget what brings him in, but it's not the, um, cause he, he, uh, how does he end up in jail? How does he end up in custody? It's for, um, it's, it's not murder related, but then they, they find everything else out. Correct. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, they finally, um, I guess, uh, arrest him in Boston. He was about to abscond with his wife to Europe. And it's for the said, insurance the scheme, thing. right? That's what he gets caught for. Yeah, okay. right. Yeah. 
you know, and then there was some question, you know, about whether Peitzel was still alive. Right. You know, right. he, you know, for a long time, he kept insisting Peitzel was alive and he was here, he was there, he was in South America, the children were with him, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, eventually um, he admitted that Peitzel was dead, but then he claimed Peitzel committed suicide. Um, right. So, you know, this went on for a long time. Um, and, you know, and the insurance, you know, the insurance people were very, very set on nailing him, you know, right. among yeah. other things. Yeah. You know, I think that they wanted to make an example out of him, um, you know, to discourage other people, you know, from sure. you know, trying to pull off insurance scam. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, but, but, but originally, you know, and, and Holmes, when he was initially arrested, you know, just thought he was being picked up for this, again, this insurance fraud. Right. Um, and, you know, that he'd probably just do a few years in jail and get out and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, so, and it really wasn't until Geyer, you know, Geyer found the bodies of the children that Holmes realized, right. you know, how much trouble he was in. So, And so then, so then he, so he gets put up on murder charges and even the trial right. is kind of bananas. You know, I think uh, the obvious um, comparison is to the O.J. Simpson trial, and it's only because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, both involve murders, um, but they're just such circuses for the time period. Um, and I mean, the Holmes trial is no exception. Right. Well, yeah, that was very fascinating. I was writing it. I mean, you know, again, you know, if they'd had cable cable TV back then, it would have been twenty four seven. Um, but you know, it, it generated the sort of nationwide publicity, you know, that something like the OJ trial did, you know, given the technological limitations of the time. Right, right. Um, but, but it was also a little, you know, it, it was also, you know, had affinities, for example, with Ted Bundy, um, you know, because Holmes actually was defending himself for a while, you know, as Bundy <laughs> right, yeah. tried to do at some point. Um, and, you know, in both cases, you know, it illustrated the old legal saw, you know, that a man, you know, who serves as his own lawyer has a fool for a client. So, um, yeah, so that didn't work out. You know, that didn't work out, yeah. you know, for, for either one of them. So, Although he did a great job, you know, by, by the accounts of the day and other accounts, like he did a pretty decent job defending himself. I mean, he just was well, in the super beginning, guilty. Yeah, he started off strong, but, right. you know, but yeah. Well, I mean, he's guilty of the crime. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I mean, you know, it's another sign of his megalomania, sure. you know, which is also, again, you know, a kind of typical thing among serial killers, yeah. um, you know, who, you know, like to think of themselves as, you know, Hannibal Lecter geniuses, mm-hmm. you know, which none of them <laughs> really is. But, sure, sure. Um, you know, I mean, Hannibal, I was sort of Hannibal Lecter is, you know, Hannibal Lecter is much less a, a realistic portrait of a serial killer as a portrait of how serial killers want to think of themselves so. like an idealized version of what they believe they should be well they you know they think they'd be supermen <laughs> you know they think of these geniuses they think you know they can outwit you know the police and so on and so forth you know sure. which Holmes, uh, you know obviously felt so yeah well so i mean in in the trial you know i can't overstate this at all the trial itself is worthy of a book i mean that is worth reading mm-hmm. about in and of itself i mean it is just fascinating you know he claims to have be turning into the sign of you know be turning into the devil and like he's convincing people uh he's losing weight yeah. and he's writing his memoirs you know first he says he didn't yeah, do yeah. anything then he puts his memoirs out that he murdered you know then he that he admits to all the crimes um so yeah. then he's he is hanged and um mm-hmm. 
you know, and so, you know, essentially people believe that the story is over. But in closing, we got to talk about the Holmes curse because this is just an interesting mm. phenomenon in and of itself. You know, mm. the, this, the, the, um, you know, there's been a lot of speculation on whether Holmes actually, you know, was murdered there or he, act, he or he escaped and then committed, you know, ended up re- having retribution on, you know, all the people who convicted him or were involved in his conviction. And that's the Holmes curse, which we're about to talk about. But in that series, they end up exhuming his body and it, Holmes is buried in his grave. Mm-hmm. So he was murdered, you know, murdered. Well, he was put to death for the crimes. He mm-hmm. he was. Mm-hmm. So that makes the Holmes curse that much more interesting because it, you know. Could it be supernatural? Probably not, but it sure does seem that way. You know, let's talk about it. So, so well, you know, yeah. So, so to tell well, me a little yeah. bit about the Holmes curse. Explain it to me. Um, well, you know, as I remember, and you know, now I can't remember the deal, but just all these, you know, uh, there was a string of you know very bizarre fatal accidents, sure. you know, that befell various people you know, who are intimately involved in the Holmes case. Like the but, judge but again, and the foreman and like, you know, I think even yeah, Dyer, like all foreman. these, lots of tragedies yeah. befell either them personally or people in their family. Um, right. But, you know, it's, you know, you still, it's like, uh, you know, you still read every now and then like all these horrible things happen to people who work on the exorcist. <laughs> you know, right, right. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You know, yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's, it's sort of like, again, a little bit illustrates the point I was making earlier which is that, you know, we're sort of programmed, you know, to, you know, to, you know, think of these killers, you know, in in supernatural terms. Um, You know, it's very, very easy for us, you know, to transform them or to somehow assimilate their crimes, you know, to these ancient, you know, folk stories and, and ghost stories and monster stories. You know, so, you know, they become these larger than life supernatural figures, you know, so the notion that Holmes, you know, somehow contrived not to be executed and then became, well, then, you know, killed all these people, or again, there was some supernatural element, you know, that is this, you know, that's this, you know, sort of primitive folkloric level of the imagination in operation, you know, I think. Um, I agree with that. You know, and again, it's, it's, it's. You know, no, I'm not denigrating that anyway. You know, we we need wonder. You know, um, you know, we again, a lot of these serial killer stories, you know, provide grown-ups with the kinds of titillating, you know, uh, you know, what the French call frisson, this little shiver of pleasurable dread. Uh-huh. You know, that, you know, that, you know, that we get when we're kids from monster movies and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, but but one consequence of that, you know, is, you know, it, it, it becomes very, very difficult. You know, these these myths become perpetuated. You know, the old, there's that, you know, there's a famous John Ford movie, The Man Who Shot Liberty Balance, mm-hmm. you know, where at the end. Um, you know, this whole story that's grown up about, you know, this uh, U.S. senator played by Jimmy Stewart who killed this bad guy, you know, in a shootout played by Lee Marvin, you know, and at the end, you know, you learn that it was really John Wayne who killed him. (laughs) You know, know, the journalist (laughs) says something like, you know, when when the fact becomes legend, print the legend, you know, and, you know, so, you know, these legends, you know, a lot of legends, 
have grown up around homes. In fact, a lot of legends about homes, you know, were, were created, you know, as, as soon as the first time some, you know, some of these journalists stepped into the castle. Um, so, so again, it becomes a little difficult after a while to separate those two things. Yeah, I mean, I, I will I will give you that. I think the Holmes curse, especially knowing what we know now, it's obviously a string yeah. of very creepy but obvious coincidences. I mean, because we're talking about mm-hmm. eight or nine people very closely associated yeah. with that trial who didn't just die. Right. We all died, but died under very mysterious, sometimes tragic and violent circumstances. Uh, I mean, it's weird. Right. You know, we can agree that it's yeah. weird. Is it Holmes? No. Yeah. Um, but it's, yeah. it, this is what you're saying. This is the type of stuff that creates these folklores and legends. Um, you're saying yeah. with the murder castle, I say that the murder castle was actually probably more used for killing than, than you believe. Yeah. Um, but yeah. the, definitely the Holmes curse is, is, is very strange, but yeah. folklore. Well, and again, you know, you, you know, you totally could be right about the Holmes castle. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds about it. Um, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think that some of the stuff has been, you know, has been exaggerated on the other hand, you know, and, and again, there's no doubt that people were murdered there right. and that, you know, bodies were dissected there. Um, but yeah, but you know, who knows, right? I mean, it, it, you know, it could be, I have reached the age of maturity where, I am comfortable saying I might be wrong about stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so, yeah, so, so, you know, could it's, you know, the likelihood is, you know, the truth is somewhere probably in between my most cynical thoughts about it or skeptical thoughts about it, let's say not mm-hmm. cynical, but skeptical thoughts about it, yeah. you know, and, you know, and the other extreme of, you know, he killed a hundred world's fair goers. Or something. Sure. Sure. No, that's fair. Um, and yeah. you know, we're, so, so the book we're talking about, and I highly recommend this book, uh, to, to everyone listening, it, it's depraved. You have a lot of D word <laughs> Uh, serial killer books. Yeah. It's depraved. Is this one? Deviant, deranged, depraved. Yeah, and a trilogy. Um, for some reason I got into my head early on, but I wanted to write a trilogy of books that begin with the letter D. So um, yeah, deviant, deranged, depraved. Somebody once said it sounded like the title of a really sick Cole Porter song. So. <laughs> well, Alfred Hitchcock did that. All of his um, famous works have just one sentence or one word titles, which I always really loved. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> except Rear Window, obviously. Um, so, so you got a book coming out. Let's talk about the book coming out as well, because it sounds really interesting. It sounds, you know, kind of similar to mm-hmm. the Holmes case. Yeah. Well, the book coming out is called Hell's Princess. It'll be out in April. Um, the subtitle is The Mystery of Bell Gunnis, Butcher of Men. Uh, Bell Gunnis was a Norwegian immigrant um, who came here to Chicago, actually. And then... Um, uh, uh, well, apparently bumped off a husband, didn't collect all this insurance, and purchased a, a large farmstead in uh, Laporte, Indiana, uh, and then um, bumped off another husband and uh, began to put these matrimonial ads in Scandinavian language newspapers and lure lonely Norwegian bachelors uh, to her farm, making sure uh, that they brought all their life savings with them. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, he would um, poison them and then chop up their bodies and bury them in her hog lot. And uh, the crimes were finally uncovered in 1908 uh, when her farmhouse burnt down under mysterious circumstances. 
and um, in the in the cellar of the house, which is all that remained, uh, they found um, the bodies of her three children, you know, burned to death, uh, clutching what appeared to be her body, except her body was headless. There was no head. Oh, wow. um, so, so you know, there's a lot of speculation that she set. The, you know, at that time, you know, people were starting to suspect her. There was the brother of one of her victims in particular, um, you know, who was starting to really poke around. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people think she, you know, set this whole thing up, you know, this body they found in the basement wasn't her, you know, she'd lured another woman to the farm and decapitated her and burnt the place down and she absconded. You know, nobody even now knows for sure what happened to her. Um, but, you know, but it was a huge case. I mean, she was, well, she was known as the Lady Bluebeard. Um, and as I said, you know, at the time, there were a lot of comparisons of her to H.H. H. Holmes, um, you know, in terms of, again, having, you know, having, um, commit, you know, murdered all these uh, husbands or prospective prospective husbands and so on and so forth. So, well, it's also it includes insurance um, schemes and murdering people that you're intimately involved yes. with uh, for financial gain. Exactly. Um, lots yeah. of lots of similarities, parallels. Um, another great one from Harold Schechter. How can people get in touch with you? Websites, well, uh, social media. I have a yeah. I mean, I have a Facebook page which I don't actually ever go on, but I have somebody who keeps <laughs> track of it. And, um, you know, forwards things to me. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that would probably, if anybody wants to get directly in touch with me or indirectly in touch with me, that would probably be the best way. Okay. And I will put that on the website along, uh, along with your website, which I believe is heraldschechter.com, right? Yes. Yes, it is. Yep. Uh, well, Harold Schechter, thank you so much for being on the program today. This has been incredible. Uh, again, love your book, and um, I look forward to the next one. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. I hope, I hope, I hope, you know, my, my, my opposing point of view that I've developed, um, you know, didn't your destruction of the home's legacy as I was trying to portray it. No, that's fine. It's good. I, I, I enjoy this type of dialogue. It's very interesting. I'd rather have the fact I'm more of like, I'm more interested in the facts. Uh, I do love a good story. And if you tell mm-hmm. a good story, you know, sometimes yeah. I like to have the facts, right? Yeah. I'm one of those guys. So I appreciate it. It's good. Don't lie to me, Harold. Yeah. That's all I ask. Nothing. Right, thank you. Um, well, thank you. It's been fun. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and it's hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode and at the bottom you can follow me on social media. You'll find links to the show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of that particular webpage. You can also subscribe to my newsletter there which will tell you about upcoming guests and brand new projects including the brand new podcast, Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies, where I sit down with physicist Dr. Michael Denon, rocket scientist Ben Seepser, biologist Dr. Brittany Needham, and of course, your analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn, and we discuss sci-fi and superhero technology and tell you how to make that fictional science fiction technology a reality. 
Check it out, fggbt.com, or you can even go along with all my other projects. Check them out on danieljglenn.com. Thank you for listening.